not only is it you know contingent on the crops we grow for for the work that the farmer and nutritionists do to balance that diet but um, also it even starts a little sooner than that a whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple we want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Adiseo USA, producers of Smartamine M and MilkPay.com. Adiseo Exelite, a novel product for management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. SmaxTech, get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. R Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We're sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. Hello, and welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. Uh, this is Mark Thomas from Dairy Health and Management Services, and uh, we have a great opportunity this morning to have. Uh, Joe Lawrence uh, from Northern New York, uh, his second time on the Dairy Podcast Show, uh, to join us today. So uh, good morning, Joe. Morning, Mark. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> oh, you're welcome. Uh, great to have you and great to see you. Uh, Joe and I have known each other for many, many years. Yeah. Uh, I uh, originally lived uh, in, in, in Northern New York, uh, the Lowville area, and, and that's where uh, uh, Joe currently lives and works uh, with his family, uh, so uh, it's great to to reconnect. <clears throat> also, uh, <clears throat> had uh, quite a few years of, of uh, on the board of uh, Cooperative Extension, uh, where uh, Joe worked as a crop educator. So uh, I'll have Joe give a little background about uh, <clears throat> how he got started in the uh, agronomy uh, area in Northern New York, but uh, also had some opportunity to work with Joe while I was on the board. So, uh, Joe, tell tell the audience a little bit about your background. Uh, you know, grew up in the, in the North Country, and uh, uh, how you got to your current position. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, I, I grew up on a small dairy farm in uh, northern Jefferson County, right along the Canadian border. And after um, after college, I had the opportunity to join the extension system and as Mark said, as a field crops educator in Lewis County and uh, got to work with Mark quite a bit there, which was always was always a good time. So uh, I, I was in that position for, uh, I don't know, six or seven years. And then um, and through that time, uh, my primary responsibilities were in field crops, but we had a nice uh, team effort around a lot of forage management topics. So it really kind of sparked my interest in um, what happens to the crops after we harvest them and and uh, and the feeding aspect. So I'm by no means a nutritionist. Uh, I don't have any training there, but I've applied my field crops background to thinking about growing and harvesting and storing crops for for dairy cattle. So then I spent a few years in private industry as a crop consultant here locally in the North Country. And, and then in 2016, I had the 
chance to join the pro dairy program at Cornell with a forage, dairy forage management position, which really encompassed a lot of what I had worked on in my career prior to that and has been really a nice, a nice fit of combining the uh, um, crop management and forage harvest and storage management aspects of, of what I've done before. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. I guess one thing that I remember really well is, uh, you know, lots of uh, on-farm management meetings and, and, and team meetings that we, we had, especially led through uh, Extension and, and a lot of the programs that uh, Franz Voki and, and Peggy Murray and, and, and you worked on collaboratively. <clears throat> but I guess uh, one thing that I see is so important is, uh, you know, in terms of nutrition and animal health is is really working with the the crop specialist, the agronomist, because it all really starts with you guys, right? I mean, if if, if we don't have <clears throat> good uh, good forage for all the pr- processes that, that take place in terms of field preparation, planning, harvest, storage, so forth, feed out, <clears throat> then, you know, the nutritionists, the veterinarians need to deal with the, the downstream effects of that poor quality forage that lasts, you know, a year or more. So, <clears throat> Can you tell us a little bit about your role in, in, in pro dairy and obviously years of experience of having that opportunity, but, you know, the, the collaboration of, uh, you know, you, you said you're not a nutritionist, but, you know, you probably really are, right? Uh, from, from, from what you do, you, you, you feed cows, right? <clears throat> Just in a different way than the person balancing the ration. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, you, you raise a good point that really, I really consider that a foundation for all of my career is uh, some of that really collaborative work, both within the team we had at Cooperative Extension and with the allied industry folks such as yourself, that we would often have team meetings on farms. And I quickly realized that not only is it you know, contingent on the crops we grow for for the work that the farmer and nutritionists do to balance that diet. But um, also it even starts a little sooner than that. Uh, one, one popular kind of trend that ebbs and flows over the years is the idea of some of these alternative crops for forages. And uh, I recall early on, uh, and this is something I've been getting questions about again the last few years because it's kind of back in the news. But if we uh, decide as a farm to try some of these alternative crops and we have a small amount of them on the the farm, uh, you know, we don't always ask the question, who are we going to feed these to or where are we going to store them? Um, And so sometimes you have a a small amount of this very different crop and then it without really a plan of of who it's going to be fed to or how many months worth of feed you have. So going all the way back to the planning process, getting your nutritionist involved even before you 
um, plant the crop to say, hey, these are the crops I'm thinking about planting. This is the expected yield. How many, you know, this is what we could expect in terms of quantity of this forage. Is this really useful to any group of animals on my farm? And, and you know, does it make sense to plant it? So I think those conversations really need to start before planting even happens. And then, you know, once stuff is in the ground, again, uh, thinking about the quantity of each crop you're going to have and, and where you're going to put that in storage in order to uh, best utilize it for the animals. So that's really been, continues to be the, the focus of, of a lot of this and kind of, you know, I often say I, I attempt to take a whole farm approach to the forage management topic because it, and right from the soil types you have and the crops, you have the ability to grow in your in the climate you're farming in um, to the selection of, of the crops and and uh, you know what what we do with them after harvest is all all got to be a, a team conversation between the farm the uh, agronomist the nutritionist and veterinarian anyone else that's involved in that picture. You know, that's a really <clears throat> excellent point, Joe. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> at the end of the podcast, we asked what separate out the, you know, uh, star producers, if you will. And, and <clears throat> maybe I'll answer that now. And it's just, you know, inventory planning and management, right? Because how many times do we run into either not having enough forage and w- whether that's homegrown, purchased, combination, and then you have to scramble and, and, you know, what do you feed? Uh, you know, we're feeding ruminants. <clears throat> we, there's, a, there's a minimal quantity of forage we need to feed these critters. But on the other side, then, yeah, you, you know, okay, here, here's the feed stuff. Okay, well, where does this fit? Well, gee, it doesn't really fit at all. Maybe if you had some backyard horses, we could, <laughs> we could feed it. But so, that, you know, that's a great point of, okay, we're going to grow this. Or, or did you now just grow something that we can't utilize well and we're short on some other uh, uh, product, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's different for a cover crop, but, you know, effective utilization of, of, of the land. Um, I, I guess, you know, from, from your experience, what would you say some of the most major advances there's been just in the, even the last few years of um, harvest and storage? You know, those folks that really maximize the feed out of what they grew and harvested. Yeah, I think, um, well, maybe we're going back more than a few years, but the, you know, on the hay, on the hay crop side, um, you know, I, I remember a time where first cutting, and this is, you know, a Northeast perspective, um, but a, a, the first cutting was, you know, often kind of, wasn't necessarily the highest quality, but you had to harvest it to get onto the the rest of the cuttings, right? And and that's really flipped on its head now that we have a we do a much better job with our timing of our first cutting, and we see that the we often get some of the best digestibility of that hay crop forage in, in the cooler spring conditions. So if we can harvest that early. And uh, that often ends up being the preferred feed on the farm now. And, and um, 
you know, the newer metrics we have for evaluating forage quality and fiber digestibility and stuff like that show us that sometimes those mid-season, second, third cuttings of the hay crop aren't aren't as good as we once uh, considered them to be in part because, you know, in that hotter part of the summer, they're, they may not um, be quite as digestible. On the corn silage side, you know, kernel processing has been around for several decades now, but continues to be something that farms are doing a better job with and is really opening up uh, their ability to um, utilize that starch. So, you know, we often, we get a forage test back and it has starch content and starch digestibility on it. I like to add a third component of starch availability and because it can, we can have the highest starch content and the highest digestibility of any corn hybrid on the market. But if we're not doing a good job with our kernel processing, that um, is still not going to be available like it should be to the rumen. Those are some really interesting <clears throat> points, Joe, of, you know, just <clears throat> through, obviously there's been changes in, in, in agronomy practices and hybrids and so forth like that. But, you know, just timing alone, being able to capture a window of, of a forage that once was maybe less uh, quality or, or considered less quality when now, <clears throat> you know, that, that's obviously a, a huge, huge percentage of yield of the total crop, right? Mm-hmm. That you can now use for lactating cows where at one time, <clears throat> perhaps that was considered, you know, an inferior forage. Um, <clears throat> as you talk about uh, corn silage and, and digestibility and starch availability, uh, tell us a little bit about some of the uh, plot trials you've done uh, I know that's something you've been really involved with, and uh, you know a lot of that data we've used in in our role of uh, helping guide clients, producers in terms of different different hybrids and and uh, growing days and so forth. Uh, tell the group here a little bit about how how you do those plots and and the data, and and especially the independence of that data, right? You know, pro dairy, uh, you're you're doing that independently. Uh, which is real important for the industry. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So it is. It really is a partnership with the seed companies. Uh, they they enter hybrids. We we offer a program where they can enter hybrids each year. So obviously, without their per, uh, partnership on it to enter the hybrids, we wouldn't have a program. So I always want to acknowledge that. And so what we do is we take these hybrids that are entered each season. And uh, we, as a third-party organization, we plant all of these hybrids from multiple companies side-by-side at at various locations across New York. And we we also partner with the University of Vermont, so we have locations in Vermont as well. Um, And these hybrids are all grown and replicated uh, trials side-by-side in the same growing environments. And, and at the end of the year, we produce a report, uh, which I'm actually working on, the 2023 report today, um, that uh, uh, shows the difference in performance between these hybrids, uh, both yield and we, we report numerous quality metrics that you would expect from a, your standard forage quality analysis. And then a, another uh, tool we utilize is the CNCPS uh, program from Cornell, which is a, a um, model for 
balancing diets. And we use that in a little different way than a nutritionist would use it to balance diets. We essentially build a standard diet and then we uh, we take out what we consider kind of an average corn silage um, analysis and then insert the analysis for each of these hybrids and look at what that the quality metrics of that hybrid do to our predicted milk yield. So the key numbers that we kind of highlight in our report are the obviously the crop yields and then a predicted milk yield um, for each hybrid using these values. So it, it's not, obviously, it's not how a nutritionist would use it because if a nutritionist put in a new corn silage, they would then adjust, tweak other parts of the diet to um, rebalance the ration, right? We're not doing that. We're trying to use this as a tool to understand the differences in the quality of each of these hybrids. Um, and so uh, by using the tool that way, we get some differences in predicted milk yield. Uh, and I will say, you know, back to what, you know, what we continue to learn to your previous question is, is among the, you know, really top genetics in the industry right now for corn hybrids um, of the conventional hybrids, uh, you know, there, it's a pretty, it's a pretty tight, tight race there. Um, but what we often see is a lot more variability between growing environments and locations. So what we've really been focusing on and trying to investigate more is is looking, collecting as much weather data as we can and looking at the influence of specific weather patterns during the season on, on the resulting quality. Uh, and we, um, and one, another way we look to utilize that in addition to just looking at how each individual hybrid performed is categorizing how all of the hybrids at a location performed relative to the weather data. And we think there's a real opportunity there for farms to use the data in that way in looking at the the uh, weather that they had at their specific location and finding the results in our report that most closely match that, even if it was a location that was across the state from where you you were, you may have similar precipitation patterns, similar growing degree days. And so we think there's a real opportunity to use the report in that way to essentially calibrate your your mind and say, all right, this is this is the average of all these hybrids under these growing conditions. So now um, now I know what I should have expected at a performance on my own farm and did didn't the crop I grew this year kind of match those expectations? And can I use this data when I'm selecting hybrids from the company to say, this is what we should expect out of the growing season and ask the company to provide uh, their internal data to see how, how their hybrids matched up to that. So Joe, um, obviously I'm, <clears throat> Uh, connecting here from Torreon, Mexico, so very, very different climate than than northern New York, uh, as I know well, uh, having lived in in both locations now. But those obviously those differences are significant. But are they so significant? Would there be any value in using that hybrid uh, data at all, for instance, from New York, Vermont, uh, or is it is it just completely not even of any use in terms of 
looking at you know the the, the west uh, <clears throat> the west coast uh, you know midwest uh, the, you know here and here in a, a very arid high high desert environment <clears throat> that's a really good question and i'm i'm not quite sure how to answer it um i think the way we present the results uh you know we we offer uh the information in terms of um kind of uh so what we use is called we call a percent of plot mean so instead of reporting that the yield maybe was 25 tons per acre, uh, we report it as a percentage of what the average yield was at that location. So a hybrid might be 110% of the average. So it, it, uh, that one hybrid performed 10% better than the average at that location, or it could be 95%. So it was 10% or 5% lower yielding than the average at that location. So while there's some real differences, especially when we think about rain-fed systems versus irrigated systems, uh, I, I think that there still could be some value in looking at those percent of plot means and how consistently that hybrid performs. Because if it's, you know, if it's 10% above the plot mean at every location, that's suggesting that it, there's some um, consistency there in it, its performance across multiple growing environments. So will that translate directly to the West Coast or, or you know, into the South? Um, no, not, not directly, but I think it still offers up some indications of how that hybrid tolerates stress, how consistent its performance is. Okay. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. <clears throat> and that, I guess that makes sense, right? That it's a consistently performing hybrid uh, <clears throat> and therefore it could use that at least for some, some relative ranking among, amongst other hybrids. <clears throat> and obviously we're not the only university that does this. And there's now there's some, you know, um, private companies as well that are, you know, utilizing data on a larger scale to, to try to collect some of this so that, so I always, even folks here in New York, I encourage them to use other sets of data besides ours. And I would certainly encourage that outside of the Northeast of, you know, ours is just one piece of data that can be used in conjunction with others. And, you know, I, you know, I don't want to suggest that we should use this across all environments. I just, I just think, you know, the more pieces of data that you collect, um, in in the decision making process, it allows you to, you know, get an idea of of how it, uh, you know, how consistent a, pr a product might be performing, right? <clears throat> Joe, how have you seen? So you've been doing this for for years now. Uh, the adoption of that information uh, and, and utilization of such. So, <clears throat> could could you attribute, you know, that that uh, within herds that use, you know, this, this data, they have certainly seen, I mean, it, it's obviously very difficult to say that's the cause and effect, right? <clears throat> but definitely an improvement in, in uh, quality and or also herd performance based on that data. Has it, has it extrapolated to more milk? You know, I honestly can't answer that. I and and a lot of the feedback, frankly, I get is actually more from nutritionists than 
some of the allied industry than directly from farmers. So I, you know, I, I would go back to the consistency piece. I think what I do here is that it's not extrapolating, you know, directly to more milk or something, but that, you know, farms are, are finding as they, they focus in more on utilizing data sources like ours and others uh, in the decision-making process that it's, it's um, helping with consistency and taking some of the, uh, you know, the highs and lows out of, out of uh, year to year. I mean, obviously the weather has a big impact year to year, but we can, you know, perhaps take some of the, uh, um, some of the variation out of that with, with focusing in more on, on, uh, uh, you know, conscious efforts around, the selection of our crops and and not not uh, making drastic changes from year to year based on you know um, a reaction to the previous growing season or a, a new product that's on the market that we don't have a lot of information on yet. You know, sometimes we react to those things, try them, and it it really throws a, a lot of variability into our feeding program. So I think we've, we've, you know, we could say we've seen some more consistency there. And that's a good point too, because, you know, within this process, just more attention to the entire process, right? You know, folks that are <clears throat> using that data are, are more likely to be involved, not just in <clears throat> the selection of the hybrid, their seed, but, but all the pr processes of, you know, field preparation and, and fertilization and so forth. So I guess, you know, <clears throat> important point there. Yeah. And just one one more thing. I, I mentioned it already, but we're really dealing, you know, in the trials with the the top performing hybrids already from most of these companies, right? Um, and uh, someone recently used the analogy to the artificial insemination industry and selecting bulls. Um, you know, perhaps in the early days of that industry, there was a lot of variability in the bulls you selected. Um, you know, today it's—I think it's fair to say—and you can correct me if I'm wrong—but that we, uh, that you know, whatever company you're working with, their their top performing bulls are, they you know are going to be bring some similar performance and um, traits, right? And I think we see that in the crop industry as well as. Um, you know, in, the, in years past, there was more variability between some of the genetics, but now we're really dealing with an industry where there's a very consistent um, level of high, high performance across a lot of these companies because of what they've invested in their genetics program. So, um, so when we think about that, you know, we would expect that uh, we, we're getting the best performers and but it might only be 10% of a company's portfolio, right? If they enter four hybrids into our trials, but they have 40 in their portfolio that they're available to customers, um, you know, we're getting a snapshot of that. So that's, again, why we really encourage the data to be used in conjunction with other sources to, to say, this is an indicator of what what good performance was for this season and now but but maybe there isn't a hybrid in the program that specifically meets my needs so asking your seed representative 
what what other hybrids do you have in your portfolio that more align with my needs but show performance characteristics considered um you know comparable to what this third party data is showing we should be expecting that's a really good point joe that you know really the 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 playing field has been leveled so to speak right like and i think you you make a good point you know across all the the bull studs um you know you're you're probably not going to have some go wrong with any bull they offer to some extent some people may disagree with that but you know in a commercial dairy setting right that they're they these these studs are uh selecting good good sires so likely a a reputable seed company is going to have you know certainly a range but a more level playing field i guess given that um what is the range of differences there you know so you're you're selecting the, the the top um, and you said that obviously environment weather plays a significant role. So I think that's <clears throat> a you know, really important point. Um, yeah, w- within that, what is the spread? You're working on that now. Is, mm-hmm. is, it, is it pretty narrow or is, are there some outliers that, that you know, don't perform well, but then can you potentially explain that again by this year's growing season? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... I don't know if I can put a number to it off the top of my head. I mean, I mean, we will see, um, you know, we will, we will see like on the yield side, uh, there could be a, you know, four ton per acre yield difference from highest to lowest at a location, which seems significant on the surface. Right. But then because we're doing this replicated work, first we got to ask ourselves, what are the statistics behind this? And, you know, sometimes our, our the we, we present it in terms of a least significant difference or an LSD. So sometimes, uh, you know, given the variability of doing field work, the LSD could be two and a half tons per acre. So we have to really, you know, pay attention to that and say, even though there was this difference in, in average yields, um, uh, you know, we have to get up to a relatively high number before we say it's significant, uh, significantly different. And um, where was I going with that? Oh, and the other thing that really helps explain some of it a lot of times is, is uh, dry down. And, you know, you mentioned before about selecting uh, based on relative maturity or day, days needed from planting to harvest. And that's um, definitely a factor that contributes if we and, and this isn't this isn't so much common on our trials. So we do see it in our trials, but on a commercial dairy, if if you're selecting hybrids that are really stretching the length of your growing season and you're just not able to get those to dry down into what you know we would prefer the mid 30s for a whole plant dry matter content um the you're really sacrificing a lot there uh in terms of both yield and quality um we see where you know harvesting even in the low 30 percents for whole plant dry matter which used to be kind of considered acceptable versus getting so if you just you know if you're harvesting at 31 percent 32 percent and you can be patient and you select the right hybrids and you can wait and get that up to 35 36 percent 
whole plant dry matter, you could be looking at an additional, you know, one and a half to two and a half tons per acre right there um, because you're allowing those kernels to mature and and add more starch. And that's really where your yield increase is coming from at that point in the growing season. The plant itself isn't changing that much, but you're, you're getting more um, starch, uh, which adds to your overall yield and obviously also increases the starch content of the silage. So, um, so within our trials, that's another thing we try to control for, but we have to be realistic. We can't, you know, we can't feasibly harvest every hybrid on the exact day. It hits 35% dry matter. Um, so we have a, a range in dry matters and we can explain some of our, you know, yield differences and starch differences with, with that as well. So I think it really highlights selecting the hybrids that you're confident can make it to, to silage maturity in your growing environment. And I guess highlights just about everything we do in the dairy industry, multifactorial, right? Yeah. You know, we get these questions, what, what, what's causing my high smell, semantic cell count? Why is fat not where we want it? So forth and so on, <clears throat> you know, uh, it's not one one thing. It's not pick this hybrid and you're going to have success. It's it's everything that goes goes into that process. Yeah. yeah. And I think I mean obviously it's different where you're living now, but in you know in our northern climate, you know just having even going with a little shorter season hybrid to give yourself flexibility because one we see that our shorter season hybrids are much more competitive yield wise than they were maybe 30 years ago when you look at data from back then. Um, but also, again, we can actually gain more yield by waiting for it to dry down. And, you know, as you well know, Mark, as, as we face up here in Northern New York, it, it could be a matter of there's a frost in the forecast next week, or there's some, uh, remnants of a hurricane coming up the east coast that's going to dump a bunch of rain on us and um and that might prompt a, a producer to say i know my crop's not quite ready but i'm going to go harvest it this week because the fields could be really muddy next week right and it, and it's dry right now so what i really push is well let's back off our relative maturities a little bit so that we're in the driver's seat and, and we have more opportunity to select uh, our harvest timing and wait for it to be ready rather than having some weather event um, circumvent that and, and drive our harvest timing. You know, great point there. That's obviously super relevant in, in different regions of the country. <clears throat> Joe, to go from the kind of the other direction, how have you seen, again, because you've been doing this for quite some time now, how have the seed companies used the data? Obviously, they're very interested in this in this uh, data when it's available. Yeah. You know, where have you seen their strategies, which I imagine gets all the way back to, you know, research and, and, and hybrid mm -hmm. um, development? Yeah, there's a big, there's a obviously a big uh, spread and, and, uh, the different companies in terms of where they invest their own research. But, you know, a lot of the uh, companies we're dealing with that have a presence here in the Northeast, you know, they they have their own research trials in, in the area, but they, they value ours for a couple reasons. One, it adds more 
uh, locations to their data set, right? So it's a, it allows them to get data on additional growing environments um, uh, without having to do the work themselves. I mean, they, they do a lot of work themselves, don't get me wrong, but it just it adds to their portfolio of, of locations. And, and, you know, again, I think most of them would say their preferred way to use this would be to, to be able to highlight um, their performance of these hybrids within the context of, you know, that it's third-party data and that it's uh, the, their hybrids are being grown side-by-side side with uh, hybrids from other companies. So, they, I think, you know, they like to bring that into the picture, but ultimately, most of the time, they're going to bring the the uh, producer that they're talking with back to the idea of this is the entire lineup we have, and here's how these hybrids that were entered in the trials correspond to, um, you know, our internal data, and you, you know, it gives a producer an opportunity to see does do our trials kind of validate what their internal data is showing or is there a different um, picture being drawn with our results? And so I think, it, you know, it, it, not that it, I don't want to suggest that, you know, there's anything wrong with their internal data. I think, um, you know, for the most part, all of our companies do a really nice job there. Uh, but it, but nonetheless, you know, we're all human. Human nature is to look at, you know, you know where where potential um, biases could could come into play, whether they're whether they're intentional or not. And and in that case, having um, some additional growing environments and uh, in a in a third party format can, you know, ultimately kind of help um, bolster your. The, the story you're trying to build around around the hybrids you have in your portfolio. And, that, and that's a great point. <clears throat> and you also mentioned, you know, the, the statistics, the data, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, we, we many times fall short on this in uh, evaluating <clears throat> a feed additive, a treatment, uh, success, what have you, is mm -hmm. uh, we don't really have enough data or, or uh, enough statistical information to say, is this really different, right? So I think that's a really important point. Yeah, there was a difference here, but is, is that real? Right. So, and I think that's an excellent point. And you, you know, you deal with this all the time as well, as you mentioned, but so there's two parts of that. There's, there's trials like ours that are replicated and do have statistics, but we need to make sure that we're paying attention to what those statistics are telling us, because sometimes we may see a new, numerical difference that catches our eye, but if ultimately it's not statistically significant, you know, we shouldn't be really putting a lot of weight in that numerical difference, right? And so that's on the replicated trial side, but, you know, just as you deal with and um, inside the barn, the other thing is too often we get a scenario where someone, you know, just plants uh a strip of two different hybrids with no replication at all, or even they may be in different fields, one on one side of the road and one on the other side of the road or something. And, and then they try to draw some sort of observational conclusions from that. And, you know, that, that really is um, problematic in, in terms of there's just too many variables there. So this isn't my work, um, but uh, 
the nutrient management spear program at Cornell has done a, a lot of work in, in utilizing technology to implement what they're calling a, a single strip approach to to these sort of field analysis. So utilizing the GPS technology on the planters, on our uh, fertilizer applicators and our sprayers, and then the, our ability to collect yield data at harvest and introducing statistically valid methods for farms to uh, um, do replicated uh, trials within the field uh, at a field scale with their own equipment and not needing, you know, our specialized plot harvesters and stuff. And so I think uh, as our farms gain more of that technology, um, again, analogous to what's going on inside the barn, right, we can we can track more of that. Uh, we have records of it because our machinery is able to, to document what's going on. And then we can uh, facilitate more valid research on, uh, you know, within the field that a farmer can do themselves and not just have, uh, you know, these, these kind of side-by-side -side comparisons that really, really don't carry a lot of value. And that's a great point, Joe. I guess your your analogy to comparing two uh, fields on different sides of the road would be no different than you know comparing uh, two pens of very different demographics, or in some cases, two different farms. Right? You know, mm -hmm. we're feeding this at one farm and not the other farm, and look at the milk response difference. Well, okay, yeah, we know we know that doesn't hold true at all for all the the variables there are. Um, <clears throat> Joe, so um, what are some of the other uh, projects you're working on within within Pro Dairy uh, in terms of you know really working directly with the the producers and and having some impact uh, that they can hopefully demonstrate in terms of productivity? Yeah, I think I mean uh, in terms of like field research right now there not a lot new to report, but I think something that continues to be something that, that brings me to a lot of farms is, is, uh, evaluating harvest protocols and, and, you know, bunk silo or drive over piles, pits, whatever they're called in different parts of the country, um, that, uh, you know, really still focusing in on, on better management there. So, you know, on the harvest side, we had a project a few years ago now where we we were really trying to help um, producers understand the impact of, of hybrid on, on kernel processing for, again, that starch availability piece of corn silage. So, you know, there's been a lot of work done by en some engineers and others related to um, improving kernel processing especially with these high throughput choppers. So we have these choppers that are, you know, putting a lot of tons through an hour. So how do we improve um, the kernel processing? And we've done a good job there on the engineering front, but sometimes we still get into these scenarios where we just kind of set the um, chopper at the beginning of the season, the processing score looks uh, good and we don't always go back and, and look at the, um, differences as the season goes on and make sure the processor is still doing an adequate job. And so what we did is planted some hybrids with very different characteristics. So 
We had some big, tall, leafy plants, some shorter statured plants, um, different relative maturities. So we had different dry matters at harvest and, and these were planted on commercial dairy farms. And so what we did there is, is set up, made sure the chopper on the farm was set up to get a what we would consider an optimum processing score before we went into the, these plots. And then we would go through these pl- hybrids with different characteristics and collect samples to look at um, the impact of just the hybrid on, on the processing score because we didn't change the processor at all. It was set up the, the same throughout. Um, and what we found is, as you might expect, you know, there's a difference in ear to stover ratio. So we had these big, tall, leafy hybrids, and they actually had a, a in terms of the ear weight, the size of the ear, were very similar to these smaller statured dual purpose hybrids. But because there's more plant there, we're diluting out the ear with more plant content, right? And you, you, it, it seems, you know, fairly intuitive that, that, uh, by having more volume of material, more plant going through the harvester relative to the ear, um, it makes it a little harder for the processor to do its job and really break open those kernels. And we were able to document that that was the case. And, you know, we saw going from a, um, a leafy hybrid to a dual purpose and the, that change in ear to stover ratio it, it made anywhere from an 8 to 14 or 15 point difference in kernel processing score with with these two hybrids growing side by side in the same field. Um, so that really highlights to a producer when we think about, you know, a, an optimum score being over 70 and a, a adequate being 50 to 70 and inadequate being under 50. If you have a, you know, just find middle ground and say a 10 point difference in processing score using the exact harvester with the exact same settings, just because you went from a, a, a bigger, taller hybrid to a shorter statured one. Um, that could be the difference, you know, that could take you from a, from a, a 60 down to a 50 or a, a 75 down to a 65 in processing score. Right. So really thinking about as you go through the, um, as you go through the season and, you know, maybe switching gear, uh, switching fields, you have different hybrids planted there. Uh, the other thing was ear dry matter. So not necessarily whole plant dry matter, but just looking at the dry matter of the ear as our ears get, there's kind of a sweet spot. So if the ears are way too immature, processing score can be challenging or process because some of those, um, uh, kernels are still kind of squishy and they can go through the processor without even really getting um, popped, so to speak, because they're almost more like a balloon at that point with uh, fluid in them than they are a hard, starchy kernel. But on the other end, as things dry down, we also saw where it became more difficult to get a higher processing score as that ear dry matter continued to advance. So, you know, maybe we start harvest and uh, the uh, dry matters are kind of where we want them and we're getting good processing scores, but it takes us 10 days to harvest everything. And by the time we get into that later part of harvest, we have have drier ears, which may be fine. It's probably still going to be really good quality corn silage, but we need to be paying attention 
getting out, readjusting those processors and recognizing these differences that the hybrid itself and dry down can have in those scores so that we make sure that the scores we're getting at the end of the season are as good as when we started. Those are all, you know, super important points, Joe. And, and uh, again, just need to be reiterated, right. With uh, uh, all the, all the potential things that can uh, affect the quality from, Mm -hmm. from, you know, planning now uh, this time of year for, for, you know, hybrid selection and what fields and inventory to, you know, getting back around to almost a year from now of that, that harvest and, and, and storage. Mm -hmm. And then obviously now the focus on, on, on proper fermentation and and feed out. So, uh, you know, I think it's really cool. All the opportunities there really are, you know, instead of challenges, really look at all the potential opportunities you have to really make great quality forage, uh, you know, for, for dairy. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, I don't know if there's a lot of, like, real new research in terms of the storage side, right? But I still find it to be a very um, good topic. And what brings me to a lot of farms is just, um, you know, really evaluating, are we packing adequately? How is our storage system set up? Is it is it really set up to utilize the forages we have? Um you know, I, I joke, uh, you know, uh, maybe somewhat uh, uh, cynically, but, you know, I early in my career and going back to the days when we were working on farms, there were a lot of barns being built, right? And and I would often get the response from a farm as well. We're, we're building another barn. That's where our resources are going. We'll, we'll worry about, you know, expanding our bunk some other time um, because uh, right now we're just going to keep kind of, uh, piling as much feed in, in there as we can. And, and, you know, for, for a, vi- a number of reasons, uh, espe- you know, especially here in the Northeast, we've, we've been in a little cycle here for a few years with some challenges related to milk supply and demand that a lot of farms are, are holding back on building more barns and, but really looking for new areas to improve, right? Cause they need to continually improve even if they're not getting um ex, you know expanding the operation and so we often look you know and rightfully so we look at areas around cow comfort and other areas in the farm which are you know again very well justified to look there for improving efficiencies on the farm but i always like to remind um folks that i'm working with that if we're looking to reinvest in our farm and trying to get better without necessarily getting bigger that our feed storage systems are a real opportunity area. And if we can become more um, refined in how many, you know, say bunk silos we have and how we segregate each of our feeds at harvest so and knowing what silo they're in so that we're able to utilize them for the right group of animals at the right time and during the year um, in, in contrast to having one large bunk where everything's kind of buried and in in there together and we we may know there's a nice really good feed in there that we'd like to feed to a group of animals but it's buried under two months of other feed right um you can't get to it yeah you can't get to it so i i think that's a real opportunity area you're right now is um as especially when the discussion is around how do we 
continue to to get better without necessarily getting bigger sometimes. And I think that's a really great point of, you know, one, the whole the whole farm planning aspect, right, through an expansion, what have you, is not only having enough feed, but, you know, where is it going to be stored and how is it going to be stored? And then I think, you know, your point of what opportunities there are also, uh, you know, feeding efficiency, um, uh, working with quite a number of clients on new feeding centers and just the, the whole goal, not only, you know, maintaining quality through that process, reducing shrink, but feeder efficiency, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on larger farms, the process of feeding can, can you know, obviously take many, many hours. <clears throat> How can we make that process more efficient uh, on not only the people, but the equipment also, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, some some really cool opportunities, you know, within that area. <clears throat> so Joe, as we, as we wrap up, um, you know, some really great conversation here and hopefully, uh, so, some real cool discussions to, to get our, our listeners uh, thinking here as they uh, take advantage of the podcast. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM Furminish. Mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furminish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Berg and Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. Livonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. I think you already answered, you know, one of the wrap-up questions is what sets aside a... uh a progressive producer. Um, I'll let you give your synopsis, but I think you already gave lots of different examples there <laughs> that I can summarize. But you know, what's what's your what's your quick synopsis of the you know the, the producers that you see uh, set themselves apart from the others in terms of their you know uh, being progressive and 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 uh, longevity in the in the industry. Yeah, well, I think yeah, I think so. Being aware of your surroundings and utilizing the resources available to you, and I would also add on top of that, recognizing your your strengths in the operation. So, you know, as farms have changed over the years, and I just had this discussion with someone the other day that, you know, maybe maybe uh, you're really strong in one area, and but you've always had to do this other stuff. Well, now maybe the time to say. I need to let that task go to someone or identify someone on the farm that has more strength there than I do. Um, and so I, to me, those two things tie together is, uh, you know, kind of recognizing your s- surroundings and being self-aware of what your talents are and, and what you may be better off delegating to someone that has a, uh, you know, an, an interest in an area that might be uh, more of a weakness for you. No, oh, excellent, and I, and I think it's a you know a great great point. Um, and then in terms of uh, 
a reference that you use, you know, a go-to for you could be a journal, could be a website, could be some text, but, you know, uh, that you find useful and that you would recommend to others <clears throat> in terms of the dairy industry. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, I still, well, as you mentioned, this is my uh, second time participating. And I think I answered last time that podcasts are really actually something there, you know, there's a number of good um, dairy oriented podcasts out there now. And given the time I put on the road, um, it's a really handy format to keep uh, caught up. But um, beyond that, you know, I, I uh, continue to value what I get out of some of the uh, traditional print magazines and, and they're on, you know, a lot of them have online versions now too. Right. But just to um, help, uh, help with what the trends are in the industry, you know, stuff like Hordes Dairyman and Progressive Dairy and uh, Hay and Forage Grower magazine. I, I, uh, you know, there, there'll be good, there's good articles in there and there's also often good indicators of, of what may be coming up or, you know, shifts that are in, in people's interest in, in the industry. No, that, that's a great point. And I think, you know, a lot of the online materials that are available now, <clears throat> uh, I think, you know, since the pandemic, we just see in my inbox, I can't connect to all the webinars and, and podcasts that are, uh, you know, fortunately, we could usually share them amongst our group. And, you know, can somebody connect to this and, 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 and get the summary for us? Because it looks like a really good program. Um, so that's a great point. And then I guess um, you maybe don't have much time to, uh, to do other stuff. I know you got uh, a young family and, and, uh, and, and, and busy house projects that I could see uh, you're working on all the time. <clears throat> Uh, but but maybe when when not a hundred percent connected, is there anything recently that you've you've read or you know doc, documentary or or something that uh, non dairy related that you can uh, offer the audience? Well, uh, yeah, honestly, uh, not uh, no large uh, large reading uh, projects or anything. I'll I'll kind of go back to. I guess two things uh, kind of go back to the podcast because they are so, so non-dairy podcasts are in my feed too. And, and um, because, you know, again, being busy with young kids and stuff, it's an opportunity. And, and I, you know, I, I've, you know, I try to, you know, keep up just on the news and, and different, you know, multiple perspectives on the news. And I think as a, um, both just as a, personally and and tied back to the dairy industry is we we have to recognize how consumer trends how you know global events are affecting our industry and um and i think there's a lot of good opportunities to you know you don't have to commit a lot of time but there a lot of good news sources have kind of snapshots of the day and so i find myself relying on those to both just keep up on current events and also, you know, they do help, you know, bring perspective for me in terms of what, what kind of challenges are going to be facing, facing our, uh, from a food production standpoint, 
and you know what what type of effects some of these global events are having on on the prices paid to farmers whether that's the grain or milk or whatever so um so i try to stay connected that way joe i i really appreciate that response i think uh you know uh, years and years ago i would always try to um challenge some of my uh veterinary clients you know, this is a global industry. You need to think globally, not just regionally, not even just U.S., but um, also so much of the information that, that doesn't get to us, uh, world events that people hear about are, are you know, obviously media uh, you know, has to have the big push or big bang, but, you know, <clears throat> uh, was recently in, in Argentina for <clears throat> two weeks, and, you know, if you're in uh, following grain markets and so forth, obviously the economy there is really important. But, you know, when do you really hear about the presidential election or the economy in Argentina uh, in in popular news? Hardly ever. But having lots of friends and colleagues <clears throat> and having been there, you know, the, the economy there and, and, and all that's going on politically is not only something that's important to realize in terms of how an industry adapts, but also how that affects, you know, corn markets, for example. So mm -hmm. um, I really appreciate that that comment. You know, let, let's let's think globally and all because, uh, you know, milk supply, uh, forages, uh, grains, obviously, <clears throat> are, are, you know, look, look at look at Ukraine, for example, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and how that's affected uh, the markets. So. Uh, <clears throat> We can go on and on about that, Joe, but uh, <laughs> as we reach the top of the hour here, um, we obviously had no uh, uh, problem finding plenty to chat about. Uh, look forward to seeing you sometime in the near future. And uh, again, Joe Lawrence from uh, Pro Dairy, Cornell Pro Dairy in Northern New York. Um, and with that, this is Mark Thomas signing off, and uh, we'll look forward to connecting again soon on another Dairy Podcast show. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.